According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs, and today we begin Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 this morning. I believe we concluded all the details out of chapter 3, three weeks ago before uh, our break. Appreciate taking the two weeks off and the ministry in Ukraine. Did the you had prayer time? Ladies had prayer time while I was gone? Okay. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. All right. Well, Proverbs back up and running as of today. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We ask for your hand of blessing to be upon us as we study to show ourselves approved. We ask, Father, that you would set aside distractions. We ask that you would bless our thinking, Father, bring us back into a a Proverbs way of thinking if we've lost track of that in the last three weeks. And Father, uh, allow for the course to continue according to your wisdom, according to your grace. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a big surprise here in verse 1. It says, Hear, O sons, plural, the instruction of a father. And this shocks us because everything we've seen in the first three chapters has been in the singular, my son, my son. And so for point one in the outline, Proverbs 4 begins with a collective address to plural sons. Proverbs chapter 4 begins with a collective address to plural sons. And uh, it jumps out at us, it grabs our attention, and we recognize that Solomon was not an only child, (laughs) that there uh, uh, were plural children that were born to David and Bathsheba. And then in the next generation, of course, Solomon had more than one son. How many sons did Solomon have? Well, when you have a thousand women, (laughs) you're going to have a lot of sons, all right, and a lot of daughters and a lot of, uh, well, problems (laughs) related to the polygamy and the, uh, the issues that Solomon got uh, seduced by. But in any event, there is one primary son that he has in view when he is saying, hear my son, and he is passing on the heritage that David and Bathsheba instilled into him. Uh, I believe he was instilling that into Rehoboam, into his heir, the, the son that he designated to be the king after him. Uh, But here he expands it to all of his sons, and we realize that there's a venue in which in parental instruction you're going to be one-on-one, you're going to be very personal, you're going to be very private with an individual child, but then with all of your children collectively, sons and daughters, by the way, um, and we could could even translate this here, O children, using the masculine plural for the mixed company of sons and daughters, that would be common. In any event, hear, O sons, the instructions of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. The normal expression, sub-point A, the normal expression in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs is, my son, singular. So sub-point A, if you want to follow along and keep your own outline, sub-point A, the normal expression in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs is, my son, singular. In fact, we have 15 uses of my son, singular, in the first nine chapters uh, uh, of the book of Proverbs, what I've titled the parental wisdom portion of the book of Proverbs. 
15 times in those first nine chapters, it's very personal, it's very immediate. It is addressing specifically my son, individual, singular. All right. Four times the expression is expanded to the plural, sons. And this is the first of those four times. That's why it grabs our attention now and jumps out at us the way that it does on the page there. Uh, it'll, it'll happen again in chapter 5 and verse 7. It'll happen again the third time in chapter 7 and verse 24. And the fourth and final time that it happens in these nine chapters is uh, chapter 8 and verse 32. I won't spend a lot of time on these uses because I, I want to focus on what we're dealing with here in this chapter. But briefly, we can look at each one. In chapter 5 and verse 7, after we have a paragraph that's warning against the, uh, the strange woman, the lips of the adulteress, uh, in verses 1 through 6, it says in verse 7, Now then, my sons, plural, that's chapter 5 and verse 7, Now then, my sons, plural, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And so when it comes to different applications of things you're warning about individually, uh, we have those applications. But then the things you're warning about collectively, there's no, uh, no issues with warning your sons together, your daughters together, all of your children together about the snares of promiscuity, about the snares of, of uh, fornication and the uh, warnings against the, uh, the adulterous woman. Uh, down to chapter 7 and verse 24. The third time that we have the plural, my sons. Again, it's in the context of adultery. And in in both of these cases, I think it's interesting because each time we have here the reference to the damage that's done, uh, the physical damage that's done, the spiritual damage that's done uh, to your body and to your soul when your flesh and your body are consumed. That's what it talks about in chapter 5. In chapter 7, it talks about an arrow pierces through his liver, and uh, he does not know that it will cost him his soul, his life, in uh, Proverbs 7.23. And then it says, now therefore my sons, plural, uh, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, nor stray to her paths. And this is what happens when your heart is captivated. Far more significant than what you're doing you know, uh, you take your clothes off and what you're doing with your body, it's your heart. What it is that your heart has been ensnared by, your, your very soul has been captured in this process. As it says in verse 26 of chapter 7, many are the victims she has cast down, okay? You're just the next one, or the most recent one, in a long line of victims, and there's going to be more to come after you. Uh, don't feel like you're somehow special. The seduction and the flattery has made you feel like, ooh, you're different, and oh, you're wonderful, and oh, you're great, and blah, blah, blah. You are just the next victim in a long list, and there's more coming after you. And uh, different issues there. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. And then the final use is in chapter 8 and verse 32. And... Um, This uh, is not in a context of adultery or the strange woman. This is actually in the context of the uh, birth of our Savior, the birth of the humanity of Jesus Christ. When was the humanity of Jesus Christ begotten by the Father? In a very powerful chapter, 
one that uh, we're going to spend a lot of time detailing because we have Psalm 2, we have Psalm 40, we've got references to thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And in all of those places where it says today I have begotten thee, in none of those places does it tell us what day is today. (laughs) What day is that when he says today I have begotten thee? Proverbs 8 tells us when the today is, before the foundation of the world and uh, before his works of old. So we're going to spend a lot of time here in this chapter detailing with, uh, starting in verse 22, uh, as Yahweh uh, begot me or possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. And that kana activity is what we're going to deal with um, here even as early as chapter 4. We're going to have to focus on the Kana principles that are uh, that we'll see in, in our chapter today. But verse 32 of chapter 8, Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise, do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. And we'll deal with that when we get to, uh, to chapter 8. All right, so again, back to chapter 4 now, it just surprises us all of a sudden, since everything in the first three chapters has been wrapped up with my son, my son, my son, singular, pay attention to your father, don't neglect the teachings of your mother, it almost seems like, uh, you know, this book was written to an only child, okay? No, not so, and uh, now we have it expanded out to uh, multiple children, all right, so again, Proverbs 4.1, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. I entrust to you. I am, I am bequeathing to you sound teaching. Do not abandon my Torah, my law, or my instruction. And in some cases, I think instruction is... is um, Vanilla, you know, it's 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 a bit weak. It's it's uh, we gotta uh, we gotta understand the impact of the Torah when it comes to this and how it has become personalized. All right, so do not abandon my instruction. Under point B, sound teaching is given persuasively and personally. Sound teaching is given persuasively and personally. And I'll be expanding upon this as we talk about the vocabulary of Lakach and the, 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 uh, the significance of personalizing the gospel or personalizing doctrine. Sound teaching is given persuasively and personally. And it must be taken persuasively and personally. In other words, as it's transmitted and as it's received there's going to be a persuasion and there's going to be a personalization in the process the vocabulary here in in uh, verse two is the hebrew verb lakach and we'll get into that here in a moment let's just stress the issue of persuasion and um, the personal nature of the word of god as what we see here i give you I entrust to you, I persuade you with sound teaching. All right? And then it says, do not abandon my Torah, my law. All right. So what are we we talking about? We're talking about persuasion. 
and the, the difference in the Word of God. Why is the Word of God different than anything else I might instruct you with? And let's try to expand on the, the thought of instruction. Instruction sounds, uh, like I say, it's, it's sterile. It's, it's, uh, it's, I used vanilla the moment ago, and I regret that. It's, 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 it's very, because uh, I like vanilla, it's very, um, it, it almost seems weak. It seems like, okay, here's instruction. Like, the instructions for how to build my swing set, my instructions for how to put a tricycle together, and instructions for whatever. And generally speaking, you can kind of ignore instructions and just figure it out yourself, right? Uh, the idea of instruction seems uh, sterile. It seems academic. It seems um, uh, almost uh, anonymous, right? Like you can have a room full of people and you're giving instruction and, and you're not personally invested in the content. You're not personally invested in the people that are receiving the instruction. All right? And that's what I want to stress this morning, particularly with lakach, with the, the, uh, the Hebrew idea of taking something, receiving something, uh, holding it in your possession as you have laid hold of it. You're taking custody of it, claiming ownership of it. It's now yours. All right? It's now yours. And, and this is the nature of the Word of God. It's, it's, it's unique compared to other academic pursuits that you may, that you may learn, all right? I could get up here and teach you a class on multiplication or addition or, or whatever, and you can, I could give you instruction that 2 plus 2 is 4. And you'll say, well, okay, that's nice. <laughs> all right? And you may learn that, or you may say, well, I already knew that, or who cares? Uh, but you're not, you're not laying claim to it and saying, this is now mine. This information is now mine. Because so it's, it's more than information. It's treasure. It's, it's, it's eternal truth that you are now in, in, in laying claim to. Again, I stress the impact here where it says, my Torah. Do not abandon my instruction. My Torah. Well, when did this become David's Torah? I thought this was God's Torah. Okay, or when did this become Solomon's Torah? See, in each generation, it has become theirs. Paul talks all the time about my gospel. Well, when did it become Paul's gospel? See, I thought it was the gospel of of Jesus Christ. It was God's gospel. No, I mean yes, it's God's gospel, but it became Paul's gospel. It should become our gospel. All right, when we give our testimony, it's our testimony. If, uh, if I just turned seven the other day, I would use that in my testimony. Okay, happy birthday. I would use that in terms of my gospel because it's personal. It's not just the dry, sterile, academic facts or information about stuff. Okay, it's the life-transforming information about stuff. Okay, information that's not the word of God is just factual data. And, and you might know it, you might forget it, you might relearn it, you might whatever, but it doesn't transform who you are like the Word of God does. The Word of God guards you, it defends you, it shapes you. Uh, this is what we, we're going to get into when we get down here, as it says um, in verse 6, she will guard you, she will watch over you. 2 plus 2 equals 4 does not watch over you. It does not guard you. It does not love you. That's just facts or data or information. You see what I'm saying? That's why it's persuasive and it's personal. And it should be given persuasively and personally. 
I don't just want to give you information and so now you can know something you didn't know before. I want to persuade you with the Word of God because I know what it's done in my life. I know what it will guard me against. I know what it will shield me against. I know how it's going to, it's going to sustain me and shape me in, in difficult days. That's the nature of a persuasive and personal message. All right. Nine uses of the verb lakach. The Strong's number is uh, 3948. Uh, you got L-E-Q-A-C-H. So uh, you've got uh, just basically your k sound with the Q and then the guttural k, uh, choke your throat with the, uh, with the chaith. So lakach, actually accent on the lek, lekach. All right, 3948, referring to the teaching, but specifically to the persuasion. And we should see that here, all right? Starting in Deuteronomy 32.2. Deuteronomy 32.2. There's only nine of them. There aren't that many. won't take us long. Give, o he- uh, give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. This is my lakach. Let my lekach drop as the rain, my speech, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. Does this seem dry and sterile? Does this seem academic? Is this just data or information that is being taught and whether the person learns it or not? No, there's real value to this. It is the life-transforming value, the the necessity of rain and dew and and the showers, and without which these plants are dead. These plants are doomed if they don't get the rain and the showers and the dew. dew. And so as this kind of teaching goes forth, a lekach type of teaching goes forth, it is persuasive, it is personal, and it is life-sustaining. It's also used in Job 11, Job 11 in verse 4. This is Zophar in his rebuking of Job. Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? He's not impressed with Job's arguments. He thinks that Job is just trying to, uh, just trying to talk his way out of his problems. Shall your boast silence men? Shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said, My lekach is pure. My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. And he goes on and so forth. He basically says, well, there's two sides to this story, Job. You're only giving us one side, and the parts you're not telling us are the parts that condemn you. And he's he's not impressed at all with with Job's uh, defense. But you have said, my lekach, my teaching is pure. And here's Job trying to persuade, trying to make this message personal. And Zophar is having none of it. Well, there you go. All right. And that's the nature of it, too. Because you can persuade, you can preach, you can uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You can pour your heart into a Bible class. And if the folks don't take it, the folks don't take it. Okay. It is given. But it's also received, and both times it's done, it's done by believers, hopefully under the filling and operation of God the Holy Spirit. All right. Uh, there's the uses in Proverbs. The bulk of these nine uses are in Proverbs. Six of the nine uses are in Proverbs. We already had one in chapter 1 in verse 5. A wise man will hear and increase in lekach, 
and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. So I didn't stress the lack of vocabulary when we were in chapter 1, but we're stressing it today. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. Is that dry, sterile, academic learning? No, I believe it's the persuasion and the personal preaching of the Word of God. Our passage today is chapter 4 and verse 2. It comes back again in chapter 7 and verse 21. Now here, you'll notice, it's a little bit different because now we're looking at the, uh, the harlot. We're looking at this strange woman, the adulteress. And it says, with her many lekach, with her many persuasions. You know, is, is she sitting this young man down and giving him a, a, a Bible class? Is she sitting him down and giving him a block of instruction? Is this, would we render lechach as instruction here? See, that's why I'm telling you, it's not dry. It's not academic. It's not even formal. It's, it's the, the persuasion of, of, uh, of this. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the undisciplined or to the discipline of a fool. Okay? This is what happens where it's rendered persuasion. Likewise in chapter 9 and verse 9. Give uh, instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his lechach. He will increase his learning or his persuasion. When does it become learning? <laughs> when does teaching become learning? All right, I mean, I could teach for hours, hours on end, and people can listen, but when do they actually learn? When does the, the, the actual trigger get pulled? And oh, okay, it's a process of persuasion. When all of a sudden, now not only have you received it, but you've accepted it, you've acknowledged it, you've been persuaded by it, it, it becomes real to you. Yeah. Two plus two really does equal four. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Word of God is alive and powerful. And so it's that process, that's when you truly learn in the persuasion process of the Word of God. Two uses in chapter 16. And by this point, we are out of the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. We get to Proverbs 16. Verses 21 and 23. Verse 21 says, The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. I think here's validation for uh, an approach to homiletics and why it is that there is a value in the mechanics or the process or how does somebody speak. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. That doesn't become the be-all, end-all. <laughs> There's some sweet talkers out there. They've got no content. They've got no, uh, you know, they have no valid message. But they're, they're sure sweet about how they say it. All right. Sweetness of speech increases, speech, uh, increases uh, the persuasiveness. The, the way that you take a message and you make it persuasive and you make it personal. All right, that way the people can receive it, they can be persuaded by it, and they can personally accept it. And it becomes their Torah, becomes their law, their teaching, their principle. 
Same context in verse uh, 23. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The, the best value to anything you're going to try to teach in terms of the Word of God, you've got to believe it yourself, right? I mean, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. You ever try teaching something and your heart's not convinced that it's true? Well, good luck with that, okay? And if you're a pastor, don't you dare. <laughs> don't you dare stand in a pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, and you're kind of sketchy. Well, I'm not really sure that's real. No, how do you do that? Your heart has to be um, instructed. So it says there in verse 23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. You know, the, the, the conviction that you have as you teach according to your convictions, as you teach according to what you've been transformed by, that becomes real. And uh, if anything, there's a value in that in the sense that I think a lot of folks are sick of the hypocrites. They're sick of phoniness. They're sick of churchianity and a bunch of goofy programs and stuff. And then they come and they hear the Word of God taught and they realize, man, this guy really believes this stuff. This is real to this guy. And there's a genuineness of that that I think is a a breath of fresh air for a lot of folks that maybe haven't seen a lot of that. Finally, in Isaiah 29, 24... The ninth and final use of Lekach. Isaiah 9. So we had it not that long ago. No, 29. Got that coming up. How about that? 28 is this Sunday. 29 is next Sunday. So here's a preview for you. Thus saith the Lord, it begins verse 22, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn uh, pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. What's it going to take? Tribulation to bring Israel into their kingdom to humble them and prepare them for their Christ. Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept lech. I'm sorry, lechach, our term here. Those who criticize will accept instruction. In other words, they will be persuaded. They will accept personally the truth of the Word of God and uh, no longer be among those who err. Finally, the last aspect out of verse 2 here. The Torah of God must become my Torah. The Torah of God must become my Torah. Okay? You personally accept it. You personally embrace it. You take custody of it. You claim ownership of it. It's now yours. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. It's actually the second time we've had this idiom. It came up in chapter one, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. I didn't stress it in that chapter like I'm stressing it here today. My son, do not forget my Torah, my teaching, and let your heart keep my commandments. It's personalized. It's personalized. And this is, uh, again, the, the, the delight that we have to uh, train up the next generation, to train up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
and we receive the Word of God, we receive the commandments, we claim ownership of them, we take possession of them, they become ours because that's how we're conducting our lives. We walk our lives according to the the Word of God. It orders our thoughts, it orders our activities, and our children need to see that. They need to see that we're not just preaching at them or yelling at them or taking away all their fun or whatever. All right, that we are holding ourselves to the same standard of doctrine that we are instilling within them. All right. That is, of course, if you're living the truth that you're teaching. All right, point uh, C then. The birth of Solomon. The birth of Solomon was a tender occasion for David and Bathsheba. The birth of Solomon was a tender occasion for David and Bathsheba. It's described here in verse 3. I think we glean a lot out of Proverbs 4.3 when we connect it to the actual narrative um, in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. Solomon speaks and he says, When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother... This was a mother who had just lost a son. A mother who had just lost a son and was comforted uh, and given a son to replace the son that she had lost. And this was Solomon. All right? And this was a very tender occasion. Depending on how you connect the term tender here, it applies personally to Solomon as the son. But the whole occasion, the whole episode was a tender occasion. And uh, you might imagine, um, you know, People get married for a lot of reasons, and some are kind of bad. And uh, But God turns cursing into blessing. And I can't imagine getting married under worse circumstances than David and Bathsheba. Then, uh, you know, starting with adultery and then murdering the husband and then, and then uh, covering up the, the, the fornication and then losing the child. All right. That's how David and Bathsheba's marriage began. But their marriage was blessed. Okay, their marriage was blessed as God turns the cursing into blessing. All right. So uh, again, verse three: I was a son to my father, tender, and the only. And we think about the unique and all the the nature of an only begotten, the special nature of a unique, one of a kind son. And that's this is Solomon, Jedediah. There will be younger siblings eventually, but at first, he's the one. He is the replacement for the son that died. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Keep my commandments and live. And this is why it's so tender, because at this moment, David was on the verge of the sin and the death. At this moment, David was very nearly executed by the Lord. We'll see that as we see these other passages, all right? So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Remind ourselves of these details. Since uh, life of David preceded life of Christ, it's been more than 10 years since we taught life of David. He might have slept since then. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. And this follows the uh, week that David spent fasting and praying and grieving. And I don't want to read the whole chapter here, but uh, in verse 15 is when the Lord struck the child. 
that Uriah's widow bore to David. Okay, Uriah, and the reminder of the fornication, of the adultery. She was not David's wife. She was Uriah's widow uh, bearing a child to David. And uh, so that he was very sick. And David therefore inquired of God for the child and uh, fasted, went and lay all night on the ground. And notice, he's not eating. He's not anything. He's fasting. He's just laying there for seven days. On the seventh day, the child died. This is when he gets up and he washes himself and he he moves on. He says, all right, that's my discipline. I'm moving on. And the servants don't understand it. So he's a chance to teach. And this is interesting. Notice what he's, what he's doing here. In verse 21, the servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? Now you can imagine if David was not repentant, if David was not humble, uh, would he take the time to explain himself? Would he take the time to answer their question? Would he, would he instruct? But this is what he's doing. And he takes the time to teach doctrine. Say, learn from my discipline. Learn from my um, example. He said, while the child, in verse 22, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. What a mature prayer life. Not knowing. Who knows? Okay. Um, God said, the child's going to die in verse 14. But David said, Who knows? Okay, I'm not calling God a liar, but I know God's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. And perhaps if I just pray and ask and pray and ask, then maybe, uh, maybe God will relent. Maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll uh, forgive. Who knows? Who knows? See, that's the thing. We go to prayer and we don't know. We just leave it with him and it's in his hands. And if he does, praise his name. And if he doesn't, praise his name. But now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Powerful verse right there in terms of the doctrine of the age of accountability. What happens to infants when they die? They don't, they didn't, this child didn't believe in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. So how does David have the assurance that he's going to go to him? That he will see his son again. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, the verses for our study today are verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Again, he's instructing the servants in verses 21 through 23. Now he's ministering to Bathsheba because she too has damaged her soul. She too has, uh, is dealing with the consequences of their activity. And she requires comfort. David has to extend that comfort. How do we extend comfort to others? Well, we, he's, we extend the comfort that we ourselves have received, that when we ourselves have been comforted of God, okay? The God of mercies, the Father of all comfort. So David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and said, uh, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. All right, so there's something very special about this son. Tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, is how it's described in Proverbs 4.3. Now connect that description with what we see right here. Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. Okay? And um, I think it's interesting that he gets this name here at birth and then never makes use of it after that, as far as we know. It doesn't show up again in the Bible. 
It doesn't show that, you know, it, you know, he keeps the name Solomon. He reigns as King Solomon. Um, I think he should have reigned as King Jedediah. But he reigned as King Solomon. Okay. Um, but now, we're going to do a little bit more detective work. What else was going on here? It says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Okay. And I wonder, what's that about? Because in verses 21 through 23, there was doctrine. There was teaching. Okay? And comfort is, as I said, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we extend comfort with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted from God. What is it David had received? What was the doctrine he had received? What was the information he had received? What was the persuasion he had received? What was the personal message he had received? This, this verse doesn't tell us. All this verse says is uh, um, <laughs> David comforted his wife and they had sex. Okay? And um, there might be a sermon in that. Okay? Um, <laughs> the difference between men and women and different things. A, a wife might comfort her husband with sex. If, uh, you know, does a man comfort his wife with sex? Or does... Uh, now I'm going to get in trouble. But... Um, is the sex what's comforting her, is what I'm trying to say. And if this was the only verse we had, we might think so. Uh, we might think that, oh, okay. But no, it says he comforted her, and in addition to comforting her, he went in to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son. And so there's a, there's a process here, okay? You don't have a baby the next day. There's a, there's a process here, and it takes time, and the baby comes, and then throughout that time, what's happening? Throughout the time, what's happening? Well, there's the ministry of the Word of God. There's the shepherding of a husband to a wife. There's uh, comfort to the wife, and that comfort is not sex. Okay? All right. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 1. And here we've got we to gotta put some pieces of the puzzle together. We don't have all the information, and I think it's legitimate to consider the different possibilities. All right, First Kings chapter one. David's on his deathbed, and even with uh, this virgin they put in his bed, he can't stay warm, and and. Uh, and now there's a there's a um, another brother Adonijah here is making a claim for the throne and he's trying to push Solomon off to the side. He's making some uh, p- political maneuvers to include uh, Joab and to include uh, Abiathar. I'm sorry, Joab and uh, yeah, Abiathar. And he's manipulating the politics here where he can claim the throne. And that's a problem because the throne should go to Solomon. All right, it's been promised to Solomon. And so, in the process of this, um, not only is he manipulating things by those that he includes in the conspiracy, but also those that he excludes from the conspiracy. Notice in verse 10, he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty man, and Solomon his brother. The other brothers were invited in verse 9. Uh, there were other brothers that were there, the king's sons and the men of Judah, the king's servants. So the, the political structure of the tribe of Judah is involved, just not Solomon, 
That's critical. The one that should be having the throne. Let's leave him out of this. As well as Nathan, the prophet. Let's leave him out of this. He speaks for the Lord. And uh, Benaiah, the mighty man, a powerful believer himself, uh, in addition to his uh, political role. So verse 11 says, Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? All right, now the dynamic between Bathsheba and Haggith, we don't know. Um, We don't understand how a lot of the wives interacted with each other with uh, the polygamy circumstances. Um, We do know that uh, as far as Adonijah goes, he was one of the earlier sons who was born earlier. Uh, There are no additional sons that are mentioned after this. Ralph used to think that that David became monogamous after uh, the Bathsheba episode, that he raised his children uh, with her and uh, put away those other wives and did not uh, I don't know you can prove that, but you can prove that there weren't sons born to those women afterwards. All right. It says in verse 12, so David does not know it. In other words, he's ignorant. This is happening behind his back, and he should know, even though he doesn't. Uh, he is still responsible. He is accountable, and he better find out quickly and deal with it because he's still the king. Verse 12, so now come, please let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Because if this coup takes place, uh, something worse is going to happen than being excluded. He's going to be executed. He's going to be permanently removed out of the picture, and so is Bathsheba. So go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord? Now this is interesting. When did this take place? Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant? Now, when did this vow take place? When did this swearing take place? Okay. Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. All right. Now, when did that vow take place? David put himself under an oath. He swore. This is the language of a a vow. Surely Solomon, your son, this is David speaking to Bathsheba, shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne. David promised that to Bathsheba. And what we find out when we get to the last of these passages in 1 Chronicles, he did so in obedience to the Lord's revelation. He did so in obedience to what Yahweh himself revealed. Remember, David had inquired of God. David inquired of God. In First Samuel or Second Samuel, we're not told what that answer was. In First Chronicles, we are. So, uh, why then has Adonijah become king? And so, um, and then he says, "Behold, while you were still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words." Following the biblical pattern that everything is confirmed by two or three witnesses. So, verse fifteen, Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom. And the king was very old, and here's the virgin, Abishag, the Shunammite, was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, what do you wish? She said, my lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying. Now, I said this again, we don't know when this happened. I think it was in the time of the comforting. I think it was after the death of that first child, in, in the comforting, when David went in and comforted his wife. 
uh, before they had sex, before they had, uh, she got pregnant again, before the, during the nine months before the birth of Solomon, at the birth of Solomon, at some point in that process. And I think that is what's consistent with Proverbs, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 1 Chronicles. Okay? Now there's other theories, there's other reconciliations. All right? And there are more than a few that put this oath back on the night that they fornicated. And that this was the price she demanded of David on the night they fornicated. Um, it was her bargain with him to submit to the adultery. Okay? I don't see that. All right? I don't see that. I, I teach that it was not a rape. All right? I, it was, she was not raped. I do teach that. But I do not believe that she bargained for an heir to the throne as a price for the, the fornication that night. All right? So, uh, but let's look at the rest of this here. Uh, so, uh, she says, my Lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God. See, and here's the thing. He took himself under an oath and he cited Yahweh, his Elohim. Yahweh, his God. He put himself under the obligation to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me and he shall sit on my throne. And I think every time this vow is stated, it is Solomon who's mentioned by name. That's why I don't think it could have been on the night of their fornication. That, uh, you know, he didn't know a, a son by name. He didn't want her to get pregnant in the first place. And when he found out she was pregnant, he tried to send Uriah in there to cover up. Okay. Now behold, Adonijah is king, and my lord the king, you do not know it. He has uh, done all this. He's made his sacrifices. Abiathar and Joab are involved. Solomon was not invited. And uh, now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you. This is why you get paid the big bucks. You've got to make the decision, okay? The buck stops with you. Deal with it. And uh, all of Israel is watching to see who you put on the throne. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as you sleep with your fathers that uh, I'm doomed. <laughs> and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. And then while she was still speaking, here comes Nathan. He's going to confirm this. Here's Nathan the prophet. And uh, in verse 24, he says, Have you, have you, did you mean to put Adonijah on the throne? <laughs> they're saying, Long live Adonijah and so forth. And, and uh, but they're excluding me. They're excluding Zadok. They're excluding Benaiah. Remember, Zadok was the faithful priest in David's day. Zadok is going to be the line of Zadok that will serve uh, in the millennium, that will serve Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. Because Zadok was faithful in the days of David. Anyway, so King David said, now all of this is, so far all of this is hearsay. Well, you, you said, you said, you said, you said. Didn't you say, didn't you say, didn't you say? Now we're going to hear it from David's own lips. In verse 28, David said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence, stood before the king. And the king vowed, and said, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely as I vowed to you. So he admits it. He confesses this is from his own lips. Yes. 
It's not just the prophet saying, well, David, you said that, or his wife saying, well, David, you said that. Certainly not Solomon saying, well, dad, you told me I could be king. Okay. This is David himself confessing that he is under this vow before the Lord. Surely, as I vowed to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. I will indeed do so this day. All right, he's going to take care of this detail. And honestly, he was negligent. He should have taken care of this long before now. Okay, but today he's going to put an end to the ambiguity of the succession. And, um, and so forth. All right. Finally, let's take a look at 1 Chronicles 22. I think here we get the spiritual dynamic that's at work. How often do we turn to Chronicles? Not often enough. We ought to turn to it more. 1 Chronicles 22. Kind of interesting. At the end of chapter 21, twenty-one, of course, is where Satan motivates David to do the census, and where he comes under discipline, and where the angel of the Lord is about ready to destroy Jerusalem. Comes to the threshing floor of uh, Ornan the Jebusite, and uh, this is where. David uh, confesses and repents, and the the, uh, the hand of the Lord's judgment is stayed. And uh, then in chapter 22, he's making provision for the temple to be built. He's not allowed to build the temple, but he's funding it. He's uh, contracting with the laborers. He's uh, arranging for the material supply. He prepares large quantities of iron to make the nails and timbers and contracting with the Sidonians and the Tyrians. He says uh, in verse 5, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious, so I will make preparation for it. And he made ample preparations before his death. kind of wish he'd made better preparations for the succession to Solomon's throne, but at least he did this, got the, the temple ready to, uh, ready to build. And so then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel and said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, here's the key, this was prophetic revelation that came to David. And this is huge because at the end of chapter 21, David was afraid. David could not go before before it to inquire of the Lord. For he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. So at the end of chapter 21, David thought, man, I'm out of, I'm out of the inquiring of the Lord business here. <laughs> I've had my access revoked. Uh, David, uh, you know, part of the consequences of divine discipline. Hmm. Well, he's not going to inquire of the Lord, but the Lord comes to him in 22.8. The word of the Lord came to David saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. Okay, And we understand this is 
we understand it's a flashback at this point. It's hard to put the sequence in Chronicles uh, because the, the flashback here, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. So he actually has the prophesied name Solomon here. All right? Before the adultery, before the, the death of the child. Can you imagine? What do you think David is comforting Bathsheba with? When he says he goes in to comfort Bathsheba. He's not comforting her with sex. He's comforting her with a promise of the faithfulness of God. That a son will be born. A son named Solomon. A son that David hadn't had yet. He's had a bunch of women. You know, track all the wives of David. He's had a bunch of sons. But he hasn't had a Solomon yet. All right? He's going to Bathsheba and he's saying, God's a God of grace. And he's promised me a son. A son named Solomon. And she gets pregnant. And then she, he names the son Solomon, promises, this is the son that will follow me on the throne, takes the vow before the Lord that this son Solomon will be on the throne. And God names that son Jedediah, okay? God said, name him Solomon, and as soon as he was obedient, he says, all right, I'm going to name him Jedediah. I'm going to rename him Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. All right. So I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. That's why his name is Peace. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son. And I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. See, it's the, we call it the throne of David, but it's the throne of David and Solomon. It's the throne of it's, it's warfare followed by peace. That, they both picture Christ. Okay? Christ is coming with warfare at Armageddon, but then millennial peace to follow. He shall be my son. I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And so here's the, here's the uh, prophecy. And David was comforted by that. You can imagine David would be comforted by that. Especially if he thinks he's blown it. He's blown it time and time and time again. No matter how faithless we are, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And this is what comforted David. He has a son. I wonder what he was praying for for those seven days. You know that son wasn't named, that son that died? We're not told his name. And I wonder if he was praying that whole time, Lord, is this the son that's supposed to be Solomon? You promised me a son named Solomon. And... uh, no, we don't know what he was praying. We're not told. But that child died. And he was able to comfort Bathsheba. Yeah, there's another son on the way. Anyways, the promises of God. It's the Bible. It's doctrine. Okay? There's a clue, husbands. You want to comfort your wives? <laughs> it's going to come from the Word of God. Okay? All right. We'll pick up on this next week because... I've got three minutes left. David's recovery from the sin unto death entailed full repentance and teaching others the hard lessons learned. David's recovery from the sin unto death entailed full repentance and teaching others the hard lessons learned. I just can't be fair to this in three minutes. 
Uh, so we'll, we'll spend some time on this next week. What do we learn in our failures? What do we learn in our divine discipline, in our recovery from darkness? Is this something we just never want to think about ever again? We never want to talk about it ever again? We want to just live our lives moving forward in, in total self-delusion as if, well, that never happened? Okay, It did happen. Don't deny that it happened. Particularly when your failure can warn somebody else against making that same failure. If you can instruct sinners in the way. Okay? And you say, well, I'm embarrassed. I don't like thinking about those things. No, I didn't say it was fun. And you probably don't like thinking about those things. There's a bunch of stuff I don't like thinking about. But ask myself, is it worth my pride to watch somebody I love go through the hurt that I went through? Because I don't want to talk about it. I don't want them to know. Or I don't, I'm embarrassed. Or, well, they'll think less of me. Or, ooh, what if my church finds out? <laughs> ooh, do they know what their pastor's a sinner? <laughs> what he did before he was a pastor? Ooh. Okay. Well, we better keep that all top secret. We've got we to keep the image up. Or, can I come alongside and warn a brother? And is that what I'm assigned to do? Is that an added component to how the Father disciplines us? Okay? It's not fun. But it edifies. Okay? It edifies. And that's what we'll see next week. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for bringing the Proverbs class back together again. I thank you, Father, for the last couple of weeks and for uh, the grace that you have provided for men that have spoken in my absence, for uh, deacons and, and others that have kept an eye on things. Father, just uh, be faithful. Continue to be faithful, Father. Thank you for all your grace. Thank you for uh, the lessons learned for David and Solomon and what David learned in the uh, consequences and the aftermath of the Bathsheba episode. Father, uh, they, they, they poured out their soul. They, 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 they taught Solomon. They, they, they wept over it. They taught him all these things. And, and yet, Father, uh, we see what Solomon's trying to bequeath upon his sons and, and uh, tragic, Father, how we see the end of his life and the, the, the wreck that Solomon became. So allow these things to impact each one of us. Allow us to pay attention to your truth. Allow us to uh, embrace it, be persuaded by it, uh, embrace it, and take custody of it personally. This is your word, Father, but it's our word. It needs to be real to each one of us. And I pray that we'll have a, a great understanding of all this truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.